They told me I use my mouth good, so I started a podcast. have a treat for you guys today. I am here with one of my favorite people ever, the amazing Pamela Morgan. And if you don't know who Pamela Morgan is, you're about to find out. So Pamela, let's see. We When did we meet? It was, was it 2014? I, it was 2014. 2014. And I met Pamela through Bitcoin and doing Bitcoin conferences and events. And she's a badass lawyer. And she also just published this kick-ass book on a topic that I have not seen anyone talking about in the Bitcoin space. And that's crypto inheritance. Yeah. Um, the other day, I, I someone tweeted me and they were like, every time I hear anything about inheritance and crypto assets, it's always you. And yes. uh, is anyone else working on this? And I didn't really know how to take it, right? Um, so I decided to take it as a compliment, obviously. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and so I was like, actually, you know, I, I don't think that there are a ton of people that are working on this issue, or there are people who are working on it, but they're not giving their work away for free. <laughs> right, right. And you were just an invaluable resource on this. And it's something people aren't really thinking a lot about. I guess they think they're going to live forever or something. Uh, yeah, I actually, uh, I did a Twitter poll when I was writing the book in February and over 5,000 people responded and I had four options like, hey, what's going to happen to your crypto assets when you die? Um, do you have a legal plan? Do you have a technical plan? Do you have a legal and technical plan? Or are you planning for immortality? <laughs> and and um, unfortunately, it appears 55% of the 5,000 people who responded were planning for immortality. Wow. So, you know, maybe they know something I don't. But <laughs> I mean, the life extension technologies are, are interesting. And they're uh, being funded. And they're being funded. So, yeah. uh, but, you know, uh, unexpected things can happen. Absolutely. Pretty much everyone's probably going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Kind of inevitable, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and I've talked about death before on the podcast. Yeah, it's kind of an inevitable thing that's going to happen. So what happens when 
these unexpected things happen and you're someone who is holding crypto and for instance you have a family or something like that i think a lot of people maybe not everyone has a family maybe they're like oh i don't really have to worry about this thing because i don't have it but a lot of people do and that's an important consideration it's just like any other you know assets you would have even though it's you may have have it locked down and no one has a password yeah well you know i think a common misconception is like oh because i don't you know because i don't have kids or because i don't have a family like Like, I don't have to do anything. And I mean, you don't have to do anything, right? But you can do a lot of really cool stuff, right? So if there is an organization, for example, like you have an EFF sticker on your laptop, and I'm actually wearing an EFF shirt uh, right now. (laughs) I love it. We're all effed up. I know, totally. Um, I, I love the EFF. It's the Electronic Frontier Foundation, if, if you're not aware of them, but they're awesome. You know, they've been advocating for online privacy for a really long time. And, you know, they're an organization that I try to support. And so even if you don't have a, a family that you want to give your crypto to, like, I believe that EFF would gladly take <laughs> whatever you wanted to give. So it's not necessarily just about providing for your family, although you can do that, but it's also about kind of taking back the power and deciding how you want your assets to be allocated and you actually totally have that power, but you have to do something to Mm -hmm. exercise that power. So you either have to, you know, you have to write a will, you have to do a trust and no matter what you do, you have to do an access plan. So you have to kind of figure out, you know, how do you want your, your loved ones to be able to access this? And the trick is the hard part is making sure that they can access it, but only when the time is right. Right. So right. you don't want to give them your keys. You don't want to empower them to, you know, to take the assets from you. So you, it's this balance of like, how much control do I give people? And, and that's really a, a personal thing. You know, it really mm-hmm. depends on you and your relationships and how you, how your family is. Right, right. And so I want to kind of back up a little bit and ask about how you got involved in the space and then how you decided to focus on this specific part of it. Okay. I first learned about Bitcoin in late 2013. I was speaking at a conference called Disrupt Startup Scale Up. Um, maybe your listeners have heard this story before. I've told it a few times, but uh, it always makes me smile. Uh, so I was speaking at this conference and I, at the, at that time I was working in entrepreneurship and I was teaching professors around the world how to help people develop an entrepreneurial mindset. I think entrepreneurship is vitally important, not only to economies, but also to, to individual empowerment. Um, and you'll probably hear me say that word a lot because it, it, it kind of resonates with me and it means a lot to me. It's kind of my, my life's mission is I like to empower other people. to do whatever it is that they want to do, you know? So I'm speaking at this conference in 2013 and it's called Disrupt. And I got super excited because in case you don't know, I'm clearly rebellious by nature, right? So I was like, yeah, disrupt. Let's, let's, Let's mess everything up. Let's, you know, let's play. Let's see how we can change systems. And I was there speaking about entrepreneurship for people with disabilities. And there was another speaker there who was speaking about Bitcoin Before this speaker got on stage, I was listening to the other speakers, and I don't mean to down them in any way, but what they were talking about was so not disruptive (laughs) that I was totally disappointed. Uh, I was like, wait, where is the disruption? Like, you promised me disruption. You called your event disrupt. On stage, there are like (laughs) three foot letters that say disrupt. And then the messaging that was coming out was not disruptive at all. Um, I distinctly remember one of the speakers there was talking about voting for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I was Ooh, like, real, uh, groundbreaking and I mean, there. that's exactly it. I was like, what about this is disruptive? I'm sorry. I can't like, I, 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 I had trouble with that. 
Yes. <laughs> so I was disappointed. And then a speaker who has been on your podcast before, I believe, uh, took the stage. And that was Andreas Amantinopoulos. Yes. And he started talking about Bitcoin. And I was sitting in the audience. And I remember thinking, if half of what this guy says is true, this thing could really change the world. And I immediately wanted to know more. And mm-hmm. so I started researching it. And in early 2014, I quit my full-time job and decided that I was going to make a career for myself because I saw the potential of this technology to change systems and change the way that we do things for the better. Yes. Yes. And what were you uh, doing before you got into Bitcoin? Like, What was your other job before? So before I got into Bitcoin, I was, I've done lots of things. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, I was a college professor. I was teaching entrepreneurship. Um, and then I started teaching entrepreneurship professors how to teach entrepreneurship. So it's kind of meta. Um, and then before that, I was in house counsel for a real estate investment trust. So I'm a lawyer by trade. I'm licensed to practice law in Illinois and Michigan. Before law school, I did all sorts of things like, uh, I managed a paintball field. Nice. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I've done all, all sorts of different jobs, you know, waited tables, bartended. And I think that that allows me to have a different perspective when I'm doing things like estate planning, because I've had all of these different jobs and encountered people in so many different ways that it allows me to, to empathize in, in ways that I wouldn't have di- if I didn't have that experience. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think Bitcoin's changed so much for so many people. And that was kind of my experience too. And I first, uh, when I first heard about it, I kind of dismissed it. But then when I started to kind of dig a little bit more into it and see the potential of like open blockchains and things like that, I was like, oh, wow, this could be really actually disruptive instead of just disrupt being totally. used as a buzzword to say, oh, we're just going to replace the current system with another kind of bullshit system. Exactly. It's we're going to unimaginative. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't actually solve problems for people, right? Like putting another person in charge doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> the, the problem no, we is just the need system. our guys in charge. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what all everyone says, right? Right, right. Um, actually, I don't know if you know this, but uh, your, you interviewed me, um, and I can't remember if it was, I think it was on a podcast, but I don't remember. It was remember. Crypto Convos it was, when I used yes, to do the YouTube show. Crypto yes. Convos, yes. yes. So that was actually the first um, video that I did in the space. Did you really? Know that? I didn't know that was yeah. your first video. It was my first oh, video. I totally didn't think it was because yeah. you're such a pro. Oh, well, was, it was. Oh, and wow. I had so much fun and I'm so glad to be back here with you today. Yes, yes. So I have had Pamela on before when I used to do Crypto Convos, which was a more uh, kind of Bitcoin-based uh, podcast and video series. And I wanted to bring her back because the space has changed a lot since that time. And I kind of stopped doing the podcast. I kind of shifted my focus to other things and had a lot of weird things happen in my life. So I kind of have, you know, shifted a little bit. But it's still such a big part of my life. We just did this awesome event in Chicago, the Internet of Money, five years later, and it went super well. I was super excited to work with Pamela on this because I knew that she would you know, put together such an amazing team and bring in the right people by setting the kind of right tone. Because there's a few other conferences going on right now around yeah. this time that are about Bitcoin. And I've, I even ran into someone in a restaurant I was at who was like, oh, yeah, I'm into crypto, too. And I'm a trader. But he had never even heard of you or Andreas or anyone. And we were like, oh, yeah, I mean, you kind of see 
a clear difference in like the, I guess, uh, the people who were going to those events versus the people who kind of came to ours, which I felt was more, uh, more of an intimate event. Yeah. 700 people that showed up. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, <laughs> but it yeah. was like, it still felt more intimate. You it, know? it did feel really, um, it did really feel really intimate. And I'm absolutely like, I feel privileged to be a part of that event. And I, for a long time, a lot of us have been talking about this, you and I, and, and, and basically, you know, everyone we know in the industry who's kind of like-minded have been talking about this idea of the corporatization of events mm-hmm. and how so many events nowadays are, profit corporate agenda driven, which there's nothing wrong with profit, Mm -hmm. but there's a problem. I think if profit is the reason that you're doing a conference and not education and not about, you know, having fun and not about like, if, if, if profit is your one and only goal, then it, it makes for a boring conference. Um, but it also, I don't think really builds community. It's kind of the antithesis of that. And you've done so much to build community in Chicago. You were one of the founders of the Chicago Bob Meetup, which stands for Bitcoin Open Blockchain. Um, do you kind of want to go into how that started? Sure. I was spending some time in Chicago. I was based here for a while, and then I was I was moving around, and I came back to the city, and I was really disappointed about the lack of community here. There were, at the time, there were two meetup groups, meetup.com groups, that were dedicated to Bitcoin. And they had, I want to say one of them had like 700 something members and the other one had like close to that, like 600 something members. And yet there were no meetups happening. So there were these two groups that were getting, you know, new members every day, but they weren't actually meeting up. And so Bitcoin mom and I were lamenting about the lack of community. And we just finally one day looked at each other and said, you know what, let's do something about it. And so that's how Bob was born. It was just as simple as seeing a problem, wanting to be able to connect with people here in Chicago and build an actual real community here that connected people and interests and all of that. And so we did it. And our first meetup was January 2016. There are about 18 people there. Today, uh, the Bob meetup has over 2,500 members. There are monthly meetups. There's at least one meetup a month here in Chicago with, uh, with Bob. Generally, there's two. So there's a social and a workshop. And the workshops nice. are where people can come and learn. The social is exactly what it sounds like. Pizza and beer or soda, whatever it is that you want, and just come and have a chat. Nice, nice. And it's so great to see so much education being done, uh, especially as new people come in because they're interested in the price or whatever. And it's like, no, no, like there's all of this other stuff. That, you yeah, know, it's not just about the price. It's not just about, you know, trading and making money, although there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so what are some other educational things you do? You also do legal workshops. I do. So I train lawyers around the world about this technology. Uh, I don't teach them the law because, because they're lawyers. Yes. <laughs> they can figure it out. Yes. But what I do is I teach them the technology side that they need to know in order to serve clients well. So a lot of people don't really know if you haven't hired a lawyer, you don't really know what a lawyer should be doing. And so we talked about the book earlier. But I just want to mention that uh, one section of the crypto asset inheritance planning book that I just wrote is all about how to hire a lawyer, how to research a lawyer, how to interview a lawyer. 
And then, of course, the all-important how to fire a lawyer, yes. right? And so it's it's this kind of full full circle, like, how do I actually do this in a way that provides value? Initially, when I tell people I'm a lawyer, they're often, they often kind of take a step back. <laughs> they're like, oh, you're one of those. And I have to explain to them that, you know, in my world, the value of a lawyer comes from the strategic planning. The value of a mm-hmm. lawyer comes from talking to you about your specific situation and saying, oh, okay, well, here are our options. This one presents this risk. This one presents this risk. We can do this soon. We can do this later. And kind of being a partner with you, helping you plan things. It's not about, you know, I as a lawyer almost never tell my clients like, no, you can't do that, right? I say, that's a terrible idea and you shouldn't do it. And here's why. But I don't really try to dictate, you know, what they should do. So I carry that back into the legal workshops, right? So the idea is I want to empower lawyers to be able to give good strategic advice to people who are using cryptocurrencies, who are building cryptocurrency and crypto asset platforms who are basically in this space. They need to understand certain things about the technology, like what is a blockchain and how does it actually work? And what are the characteristics of immutability? And what is a fork? And what happens, you know, to coins when you have a fork? And, you know, who controls, who makes decisions, all of those sorts of things. And then also key management. Yes. And all these things are so important, whether you're a lawyer or you're someone who owns crypto too. And I think you do a really good job of cover, like educating people on both sides of that to kind of talk about the lawyers for a bit. What do you think are some of their biggest blind spots when it comes to this technology? I think that often when new technology comes into play, people fail to realize its disruptive potential. And so what they want to do or what we all want to do is take this technology and put it within the framework that we already have. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a securities lawyer, for example, which I'm not, but if I were, I might say, oh, well, these tokens look like a security and therefore all tokens are a security, right? And so you might come to, you might, you might, um, attack the problem, obviously based upon the knowledge that you have before, but not realize that you don't have a full understanding of what the technology is. And so you're quick to judge what a person can and cannot do. That's one of the problems, right? So if you hire a lawyer who is not really familiar with the technology, the advice that they give you will likely be based upon their previous knowledge, which doesn't include knowledge of cryptocurrency or crypto asset, right? So they'll look at you like any other client and they'll give you the same advice, whether you are talking to them about a toaster or a car or, yeah. or a television, you know, so they don't, they don't recognize that this is a completely new sort of asset. It's a complete, it has, it has its own unique characteristics. Right, right. And so what, yeah, what are some of those characteristics that differentiate it from other assets that lawyers should maybe know? Or is this getting into like, people need to go to the workshop to find this out? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know how I don't want to give away too much of your workshop. It's, it's, I don't, you know, I don't (laughs) mind giving away the workshop at all. Um, the, the issue is that it's, it's really nuanced and it depends on the information that you have coming in. So some of the things that I cover in the workshop are, like I said before, forks. And you really need to understand how, if you're dealing with an open blockchain, if you're dealing with something that isn't actually controlled by a third party that you can compel, then you have to understand that certain things can happen without your control Mm -hmm. and you need to be able to plan for them. 
And sometimes you can't plan for them, right? And so sometimes it involves like saying, oh, okay, well, I can't control whether or not, for example, the Ethereum network forks. I can't control whether or not someone creates a, another Bitcoin, where, where are we at now? Bitcoin Ruby, Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin Sapphire, <laughs> Bitcoin Opal. Bitcoin I don't know. We appear, yeah. we appear to be going down the, the land of gems. Perhaps we've, There's we've forks of forks. Yeah. 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 Endless. <laughs> I think we've exhausted all the precious metals now. I'm not sure, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so, but, but as an attorney, right, you need to understand. So you probably, you're, you're known as probably being one of the main sources for all this information, but I'm sure there are a lot of other people who are coming in and trying to advise on this that don't have the background that you do. Like they, they don't really know what they're talking about, but they're still trying to swoop in and, you know, give people maybe inaccurate information. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that there's a lack of really great educational resources. And I think people are scrambling to learn as much as they can. And we, we don't really have a great way to differentiate between, you know, the quality of information that you're getting. And then also our industry changes so fast that Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with a dabbler, (laughs) which is, you know, someone who kind of flirts with cryptocurrency or crypto asset, it's very, very difficult for them to keep up and understand what's actually happening. Not for lack of desire, but really because even for those of us that are in the industry full time, it's difficult to keep up. It's almost impossible when you have huge advances that are happening, you know, on a daily or weekly basis. And then to understand what the impact of that is going to be on your clients, on the, the public at large, on the community, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of forecasting and a lot of forecasting wrong. And if you're not coming from a strong uh, technological background, it's even more difficult to forecast. Right. And I think that's, I mean, that's always going to, I think, be a hurdle with this technology being used in the mainstream more is it is difficult to use. And you do have to learn a few other security measures before you're really, I mean, you can still use it in a very basic sense. But I mean, as far as securing it, that tends to be the real problem. What's some bad advice that you've seen some experts coming out telling people who clearly don't know what they're talking about? Like, what are some of the worst things you've heard? Maybe Um, other lawyers telling people or not even lawyers, but you know, experts. Uh oh, we're gonna blockchain professionals. We're gonna make it that broad, huh? Um, (laughs) You know, well, all right. So last week, I, I was reading an article, I was trying to finish my book. And I have Google alerts on. Do you have Google alerts? I have Google alerts. Okay. So, um, Google alerts are problematic only because I feel like they're kind of intrusive because then when they come into my inbox, I like, I want to click on them, but then I don't want to click on them. Yeah. So, because I know that <laughs> nine times out of 10, I'm going to click on it and I'm going to be like, someone said something stupid on the internet. Right. And then, right. That's... And then I'm going to be on this tangent all day. Like, ah. I'll like turn them off actually. For, like, it's just, yeah. Like, I don't need to see. I need to do that say. if I'm on a deadline. Like, yeah, I need to do that. But anyway, so I get this Google alert about, about Bitcoin and inheritance. And I read this article and it's by a lawyer who, you know, obviously is like, trying to help people, right? Like, I don't think that it's malicious, but having like just spent the last four months of my life researching this topic and really like kind of putting the last two and a half years worth of work together, it's really, really fresh for me. And so as I was reading this article, you know, there were quite a few things that were incorrect. And there was one 
one um, piece of advice specifically that would actually lead to people breaking the law. And it's and if you're in the U.S. And obviously, like no lawyer is going to try and get people to break the law, right? It's right. it's just that they aren't aware of what the law actually is in this area. And so they just wrote the article and published it. And apparently no one did a fact check. No one did a background check because I think like those days are over. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, you know, as uh, as valuable as Google is as a resource for researching people and yeah. making sure they're not completely full of shit, it's still completely underutilized. Yeah. Weirdly. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, totally, totally. So, you know, I'm reading this article and I'm like, oh, my God, like this article is being distributed all over the place. And it has this advice about how to break the law and, and that can actually end up being super problematic. And, um, so part of the advice was, you know, leave your errors, your passwords. And I explain in the book that that can actually be problematic, uh, for a number of different reasons. One of which is because it can be against the CFAA, which is the Computer Fraud and, and Abuse Act, right? Mm-hmm. So it can actually be a crime. Now, as far as I know, no prosecutor is like hunting down heirs and like, you used a deceased person's login, right? Like no, no, you know, no AG is going to be like, Hey, let me try and find who's been using passwords, you know, illegally. How this actually gets people into trouble is when you have a, a death and you have distribution of assets, often there are problems. Often you have someone who thinks that they were slighted or someone who thinks that there was, you know, an uneven distribution or that they were entitled to something that they didn't get. And so what this does is it gives that person leverage to hold against the other people who actually got whatever the will was or or took, right? Because basically you put them, a, them in a position to say, hey, I know you committed a crime. I know that you've done this. So if you don't do X, Y, or Z, I will then report you, right? So people don't think about the power imbalance that comes from things like that. So, you know, like I said, no one's going to be, I mean, I would be shocked if any, you know, state attorney was, was looking for people, you know, who were using deceased people's passwords to like get into their account quote unquote, otherwise lawfully, right? So like if I leave my password and say, hey, you know, I want my niece to be able to access my assets. My niece has no way of knowing that that's a crime. Right. Right? Yeah. And so you have all of these nuances of problems, right? So I say, niece, you should access. My niece actually accesses it. And then my nephew is like, what do you mean she gave you everything because she loves you more. No, that's not what we do, right? <laughs> no, but you know, then it puts my nephew in a position to hold my niece accountable. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, and I mean, like, it's already, you know, when there's a death in the family and there are a lot of assets to distribute, it's already contentious enough, even if there's a will. Absolutely. Even if you thought you had things planned out. Well, and you're dealing with grief, right? Yeah. And grief yeah. makes people even more irrational. Yes. And, yes. and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a difficult situation to begin with. And then to add like this layer of complexity, especially when you don't have to. Right. Right. So, right. yeah. So that was the worst advice I've heard recently. Right. Um, 
And it's it's something that yeah, if you aren't a lawyer, you or you don't understand that there's a law like that, you wouldn't necessarily know. Oh no, because like I didn't even know. I mean, that act sounds vaguely familiar to me, and it makes sense. Like, oh, of course there would be a law like that, right? Um, but it's not something that I would even specifically think of. Well, of course not. And and really, like it wasn't written for that, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. written. The law wasn't written to prevent people from this act. The problem yes. is that often laws are much more broad than intended. And they can be applied in a lot of different ways. And then you end up with things like selective prosecution, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have this this whole host of of actions that a law can apply to. And then you end up with this scenario where my nephew is holding this over my niece and has leverage, even though that's not at all what, what they intended. Right, right. Do you think there is anyone else who's doing a very good thorough job of explaining this or because I, I still haven't found, I mean, you're pretty much the sole source. Um, and I know that you're very diligent with, <laughs> I'm not trying to be like, Oh, here's my competition or whatever, but like, are, I don't know. Are there, you know, other resources, um, that you find trustworthy? There are a lot of other resources and there are a lot of other people who are exploring this and, and writing about this. I don't know of anyone else who's spending as much time and focus on this area as I am. And, you know, you asked me earlier, like, how did I end up writing a book about this topic, right? How did I end up in this, in this topic? And really it just came down to necessity and that no one else was doing it. You know, so I was helping people who had cryptocurrency in their companies and I was doing governance stuff and kind of helping them try and make sure that you know, one person wasn't going to be able to run away with all the crypto. So I was doing multi-sig and helping them develop processes, internal processes to control and, and be able to track their money within their own organization. And when I was doing that, inevitably, I'd be talking to the founders of companies and I would say, okay, well, you know, we, we've handled this for your business, but what about you? What about your assets? You know, do you have a plan for your assets? What's going to happen? And then like they would look at me and their eyes would get huge and they would be like, uh, what do you mean? Do I have a plan? And then I would follow up with, well, how much of your net worth is in cryptocurrency? And they would look at me like I was an idiot and go, well, all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Because like clearly they're a founder of a cryptocurrency company. And then, you know, obviously there's a problem, right? So if they have a family, if they have dependents, then they would quickly realize that like, oh, they won't be able to inherit anything if something happens to me. And so this book that I've done and this work that I've done for the last two years, two and a half years, has been because of those conversations. Also, I think it's important to note that like this sort of planning isn't just for, you know, if you pass. Mm-hmm. This is also if you something happens to you, right? Like brain injury or a coma or, you know, some other thing happens where you can't remember your passwords, your passphrases, you don't remember where you put things, right? So it's about kind of preparing for all of that together. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because yeah, there are there is so much a gray area, you know, in between of like, oh, well, what if someone becomes incapacitated in some way? Or what if, uh, or even under a lot of I went through like a super stressful period in my life where my brain just wasn't working the way it normally works. And yes. I'm like forgetting how to do things that I've, or passwords that are like things that like I've known for a long time. And it's like, 
really, it was really frustrating and just weird stuff like that can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is that that's something that we can plan for, but we can't really anticipate when it's going to happen, right? Like you can't really anticipate when this super like meteor of a life event is going to come in and like smash your world. Yeah. And so it's better to, I think it's better to have a plan. You know, a lot of times people think that doing these sorts of plans actually makes them less safe. Like they're like, oh, I don't want to do an inheritance plan because I have to write down all my passwords and all my seeds and all of my information on like one piece of paper. And that is absolutely not what inheritance planning is. Inheritance planning does not require you to write down every single thing on one piece of paper. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it actually can make you more secure because you have to do a full security audit of your holdings and make sure that, you know, you've got backups of your seeds and, and where are they and all of that sort of stuff. So it can actually make you more secure, but often people think that it's going to make them less secure. And so they don't actually want to do it. Yeah. That's a really good point because if you, get through, if you get over the hurdle of learning some of the security and privacy aspects of using the technology, you you will tend to be a lot more, uh, you know, privacy oriented. Yes. And I mean, I know like when I learned a lot of this stuff, I mean, I got like super paranoid. Oh, <laughs> I, was, like, yeah. I didn't want to write things out anywhere. And I was just like, this can't be shared with anyone. Yes. And stuff like that. But I mean, that you can't really exist as an island. Yeah, it's, it's really important to be able to have a backup plan, especially with the price fluctuations and stuff too. I mean, we just saw just crazy increases in, I mean, all of the cryptocurrencies, I would especially Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. And when something goes up to that level, I mean, other weird stuff happens too. Totally. You know, I mean, now, People can become targets, for example. I don't want to get too like paranoid yeah, and like, yeah, weird yeah. with things, but I mean, well, you know, but I mean, you know, the risks are real. People are being kidnapped around the world. Kidnapped. Yeah, um, you know, people are bad things are happening because people know that they have crypto, and yeah. so you know that's part of that can be part of an inheritance plan is kind of planning for duress and planning for those sorts of situations. Um, often, you know, with third key solutions, we will advise people, you know, you, you may want to consider having a certain amount of just like go away money. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. you know, if, if you're, you know, if something bad like that happens, you have a wallet that's specifically designated for them to go away. And then you have the rest of it locked up with, you know, in, in other ways that you can't actually, you can't actually physically access. And then basically the argument is, okay, bad guy, here's enough money to make you go away. If you go away and leave me alone, you know, I will forget your face and you can just have this and everything's fine. But if you want more, then I have to go to a bank or my lawyer or whoever, and they will immediately call the FBI no matter what, because they've been instructed that I'm only allowed to access this once a year or, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So you can, right. you can create plans. Again, the thing is, is this is really about your individual risk. Mm -hmm. And figuring out, like, to some people, this is going to sound insane, right? To some people, they're going to be like, what are you even talking about duress and, like, you know, being held up? But for other people, it's a really, really... I don't want to like over. You have to be realistic. Like, yeah. If you're blowing money on a flashy Lambo. Yeah. You're putting a big target on yourself. Oh, for sure. And you need to be aware that, like, you know, as much wealth as maybe you can have, it's not going to prevent it from being stolen. It's not going to prevent you from being injured either. Absolutely. There's only so much security you can have physically from people. Go ahead. All I was going to say is, you know, this is one of the ways 
this is one of the, well, at least for me, unanticipated ways that cryptocurrency changes things, right? Because mm-hmm. when you have cryptocurrency and you get rid of that third party, you know, a lot of my work involves looking at what did that third party do, right? It's not just that they're a third party. They provide some service. And if we're going to take them out, which I'm all for, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. we have to find other ways to, to fill those gaps, right? So like, what did that 30, third party provide? And then how do we fill those gaps without bringing in another third party? And this is one of them, right? Yes. So having the power to transfer your cryptocurrency without any third party now creates a scenario where someone can expect for you to be able to transfer all of your money to them without a third party. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And so, you know, it's it's kind of the flip side of this freedom. And so it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have that. And it doesn't mean that we should change, you know, peer to peer. It just means that there's this risk that's been introduced by by way of getting rid of the third party. And we can find other creative ways to deal with it, like creating, you know, tiered storage, like locking up part of our money in a time lock, for example, if you don't want to say, you know, hey, my lawyer is going to call the FBI, you can lock up your coins for, you know, two years and say, you know, they're they're actually not available and, and, and prove that. Now, that said, with a, with a price fluctuation, you might not want to lock it up for two years. You know, so again, yes. it's balancing like access versus security. And that's always difficult for people. Yes. Now, you mentioned third key solutions earlier. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, Third Key Solutions is one of my companies. It is a key consulting and management company. And it was born out of, again, necessity. Yes. <laughs> it was, you know, I was, I was practicing law and I was helping people as a lawyer, but it turned out that a lot of what I was doing was really not legal advice. It was much more strategic advice and helping people with uh, how to manage their keys and how to create processes within their companies. And so I was very fortunate. Um, there were a lot of people who helped me develop these processes. And one of them was Andreas Amantinopoulos. And I somehow convinced him to join Third Key Solutions with me. So he's the CTO of the organization. We have a CMO, Richard Kagan, and then we have other people that work with us on a project per project basis. Um, we are intentionally a really boutique firm. We don't yes. want to grow. We haven't accepted any outside funds. Um, we are really problem solution oriented. So one of the things that I love about Third Key is we all get together and we look at projects and we decide if we want to work with people based upon who they are, what the project is, and whether or not it's making the world a better place. <laughs> and it's I love, criteria. I mean, I think it is. I think all businesses should run like that. But, yeah. you know, because, because I, I'm the founder, you know, I have the ability to say that these are the criteria that, that we work under. And, and, you know, the other C-level executives totally agree with that vision. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. great. We have a nice team. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, important to have those standards in place with who you're working with in this industry because there is just so much uh treachery and whatever (laughs) foot you know like you don't want you know uh it's good that you can't be bought and uh especially when you do have so much you know, money just flowing around the thing, money being thrown at all sorts of ugh, crazy projects. I mean, it's, it's crazy swooping in and stealing from others and not in stealing in the like they're taking, you know, taking control of your keys, but just through their bullshit projects, <laughs> <laughs> through, their, through their slick marketing and zero, marketing. Uh, zero execution. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's, that's happening in this industry. I mean, we have to be time. realistic about, you know, some of the negative aspects of the space. I mean, yeah. Oh, 
a lot of capital flowing through. There's going to be a lot of people coming in and trying to swoop things up. And yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they, they see an opportunity. And, um, and I think that that's one of the things that drew me to this industry is the opportunity. And I want to use this opportunity to model different kinds of behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so often we see organizations that, um, that don't actually have those values, right? For whatever reason, when I tell people like, oh, we only work with people who we think, you know, are, are making the world a better place, or we only work with organizations where, you know, we think that their mission is on point. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, they're like, you're, wait, you're turning down 90% of the requests that you get. And I'm like, actually, it's more like 95. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but the thing is, 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 for all of the principles in the company, you know, profit is not the number one driver. Again, you know, mm-hmm. I think we started the conversation with this, but the idea is it, it can be an element, um, but it, yeah. but it can't be everything, or at least I don't want it to be everything. You know, I've done a lot of work in a lot of different organizations. And, um, often I find when I work for companies who's, who are solely focused on profit, it becomes kind of a miserable job. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I like to be a role model and, and kind of show people that, Hey, listen, there's a different way to do things. Um, I think we were talking last night about the idea of one of my life's goals is to get people to quit shitty full-time jobs that they have. (laughs) that are like soul sucking, um, and, and have them actually follow their passion and actually like encourage them to do what it is that they love. And kind of, you know, not ignore the money, but recognize that if you're actually providing value and you're doing something that you love, like the money will come. And it's a scary step to take that, you know, it's a, it's a scary thing to do. And so I try to talk to people about it and encourage them to do that. I quit my in-house counsel job. Um, I was a real, I was at a real estate investment trust full, full-time, um, benefits, health insurance. Let me say that again. Health insurance. Oh, I don't have that. I know. That? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, 401k, you know, all, all of the trappings of a corporate job. And I was absolutely miserable. And I had this opportunity to work, to, to go as an adjunct professor teaching entrepreneurship. And I always knew I wanted to teach college. And I was scared because at this point it was at the height of the financial crisis. Wow. So it was a big decision. And I just decided, you know what, I can, I can keep working for a paycheck and effectively sell myself out. I know that I'm not happy here. I know that I don't want to keep doing this. Um, or I can do this thing that I've always wanted to do that like pays literally food stamp wages. So I believe, uh, I was being paid about $2,000 gross for 16 weeks of work. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was, it was such a big difference, but I decided that, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try to make it work. And if I fail, you know, the benefit of being a lawyer is that if I fail, I have a fallback. I can always start practicing law again. Um, but you know, I love the idea of people following, you know, their passion, their heart and doing things that they love. And that's one of the things that I see so much in our industry, you know, and that's one of the things that, by the way, I totally respect about you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so, I'm so happy that you're doing this podcast and, you know, writing these books and just like being, yeah, just being Uh such a badass. I'm, I'm, thank you. you. Well, I was just about to say, you've been one of my biggest inspirations in that area. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Just knowing you and and hearing your stories and seeing 
seeing you uh, speak at events, especially you're just so electric. And I just love, uh, you know, watching how passionate you are about things. And it is super inspirational. And uh, so another thing that's super inspiring, we kind of talked about the digital nomad thing, too. So you're basically a digital nomad. I I am. Yeah, I took the leap. You took the leap. I did it. Yeah. You know, again, I, I always wanted to travel. And for a while, I had a lifestyle that didn't really let me travel. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, when I started working in the Bitcoin and open blockchain space, I started getting invited to conferences. Thank you. And, uh, (laughs) and I started speaking and, and then, you know, more invitations came and I started traveling more and more and more. And then it just became both, you know, from a personal aspect and also from a financial aspect, ridiculous to have an apartment a house that I was paying rent on, that I was paying utilities on, that I was doing all these things that I was never at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would, you know, I would travel to these great locations and then have to go back to the apartment that I needed to clean, which didn't seem like a good idea. So I just decided to not. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's pretty great. Um, getting rid of all your stuff is really hard to do. Yes. But- You've done it in an even more extreme way than I have because you travel internationally. Yeah. So instead of like all my stuff fits in my car, but all your stuff fits in like a couple of suitcases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for now, less. somehow for we're going to get you on the road too internationally. Yes. Gonna- I, I want that. Yeah. I, I'm planning for it. Good, good, <laughs> so. good. Well, you can join me anytime. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's really scary at first to like kind of get rid of everything and you, and, and then you start to realize like how you have these attachments to things that you didn't realize you had attachment to before. Right. right. So you have this like sentimental attachment, but then you also have this weird financial attachment. Mm-hmm. So you look at, you know, I don't know, your, your mattress and you're like, I paid this amount of money for this, you know, this many years ago. And you have this, this fixed amount in your head. And then when you realize that that mattress actually isn't worth anything because no one wants to buy it from you because no one wants your used mattress. (laughs) (laughs) Then, Well, then you start to like kind of have cognitive dissonance because you're like, wait a minute, like I have all this money and I spent all this money and I have all this stuff, but then it's not really worth anything. And, and you kind of have to go through this, I don't know, cleansing period where you're like purging and then you realize you don't have anything. And then you get to this point of freedom. Where you realize you don't actually need it. I'm still going through that process, going through and get of things. Uh, I took a part of storage unit in San Diego and I was very much experiencing that. I was like looking through, I was like, oh man, I remember I had this thing and I liked this thing, but then I'm like, I literally haven't thought about it in a couple of years. Exactly. I don't really need it. It doesn't have the value that I thought it did. Right. It's a totally... It is like, a, you know, it's an artificial construct about you, basically. Yeah, well, and then it's fun to, well, fun, maybe that's not the right word, but but it's interesting <laughs> to realize that you have these beliefs that you didn't know that you had, right? Right, because I thought I was good at being non-attached to things. Yeah, totally, so did I. I'm totally not. <laughs> I, I totally did, too. You know, I found um, what helps with that is I take a photo, hmm. and then it helps me to be able to, like, get rid of the thing. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and then I can see it and then I can go through the, you know, digital photo or whatever, you know, nice. later. Um, and, and that's worked well for me. Although I will remember like, um, at my grandmother's house, she used to have boxes and boxes of like printed photographs. Did you ever have that in your family? Yes. Okay. Yes. So did you ever actually go through them? 
um, like, you know, we'd pull the box out once every couple years or something. Yeah. Like, Let's look at these, but not, I mean, yeah, it mostly just stayed, you know. It mostly just in stayed in somewhere. Totally. And we had all these boxes. And when my grandma passed, like we, we my great grandma passed, sorry, we tried to go through them. And I'm just like, I don't even know who half these people are. Like, wow. Yeah, I was just like, oh, that's weird. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It felt kind of odd. I Maybe they should have written it down, like, on the back of the photo <laughs> the or something, page. right? But, like, it, it, the idea is, like, you feel like, oh, well, this is my heritage, right? Like, this is my family. This is my – I should feel connected to these, like, prints. And then once you're free of them, again, you're free. And you don't yeah. have to worry about, you know, where those are and if they're getting water damage or, you know, <laughs> whatever. Well, right. The, 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 the and things. then the cost of storage a lot of times, too, ends up being way more than the value of the items in storage. And that becomes a whole thing. And, and then your stuff you down. And then your stuff ends up on storage wars, right? Well, yeah. And then your stuff ends up on storage wars. You're just like, ah. Not you're just like, I don't need it. I just want it gone, you know. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. worse, you forget to pay the bill. Like, oh, no. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. So how long have you been doing the digital nomad thing? I know it's a huge step to take, but I you seem pretty like dedicated to it now. So how long have you been? Uh... Yeah, probably about six months now, um, and it's it's working for me. Yeah, you know the the good news is that you can always get you can always accumulate stuff, right? Like that's right. not the hard part. Yes. So you know I'm I'm enjoying it. I, I've been traveling a ton. I, I love it, and you know the. The thing is, is whenever it stops working for me, I'm just going to stop doing it. Right. So when I realize that I have that freedom, it's not as scary. Yeah. Like you can always go back into, um, you know, the, the, I guess, default mode of doing things like paying yeah. rent or buying a place or having a job or, thing, or like a job in one place or whatever. Like that system is always there for you if you want to ever access it again. Absolutely. And it's really, you know, it might sound scary at first, but it's really not. I promise, like go on Craigslist and look at how many apartments are available right now. <laughs> like even a room share in a- anywhere in the U.S. And it's not really... You know, it's not really difficult to to set down roots. It's much more difficult, I think, to pull them up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up uh, balancing out too, as far as the cost for things. I mean, you're not throwing money on you're throwing money away on rent every month. And yeah, I'm actually saving money. Yeah, I'm actually, which is so ridiculous. So when I tell people like, yeah, you know, I travel here and there, and they're like, oh wow, and I immediately follow it up with, I'm not independently wealthy. Like I'm not a I trust fund baby. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't have, I, I don't have any Bitcoin that's funding this trip. This exactly. Like, I just went bare bones with everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, because people automatically, you know, associate, like, travel with expense. And I think that's one of the things that keeps people home, wherever home might be, yeah. right? Um, but it doesn't actually have to be a crazy expense. Like, yeah. there are lots of ways that you can do it kind of on the cheap. And, you know, what I do is when I'm invited to a place um, for an event, I just go. And then I just stay, until the next event, right? And yeah. if it's expensive to live in that city, then I try to find a city that's nearby that's like a short trip, you know, maybe like a couple hundred bucks instead yeah. of like those giant flights that are across oceans. Hang out there until I have the next event. And wherever that takes me, it takes me. Yeah. And I think people also think of travel 
as you know it's expensive because it's viewed as a vacation and yeah. a vacation is an escape from your regular life yeah. so they they do tend to spend more money or maybe they go to the most populated touristy places went to escape from their lives and it's like i don't want to have a life that i have to escape from yeah totally totally <laughs> the other thing and, and i don't know if you've experienced this but the other thing is that when i go to a new city i feel like i should be seeing all the sights Right. Yeah. Because I've been conditioned for so long to like take that vacation that you were just talking about. Right. And then it takes me a minute to be like, oh, wait, no, this is my life and I'm working and it's okay that I don't do the like 25 most popular things to do in X city. Like that's okay. Right. It's okay to work. It's okay to enjoy your time in the city, not as a tourist, but actually as a resident. Yes. And that's really, um, that's kind of a mind shift, but it's been really, really cool. Yeah, uh, that's so awesome. Like I said, it's so inspirational. And like, you've helped me, you know, talk through some stuff like letting things go. And because it it is really scary. Yeah, you're given this idea of what stability is, but it's not necessarily accurate for everyone. Well, and it's and it's interesting that you you realize that you have so much pushback, like from yourself, right? Let alone like the people who are around you, which whether or not they're supportive, you know, can make a lot of difference in the choices that you make. But inside, you know, you're it's, it's kind of a process of self-discovery. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, and I always like to challenge myself and challenge my, yeah. you know, or find what my hangups are and what my kind of like hidden, uh, yeah, pushbacks yeah. are. And it's, it was a really good way to do that. Cause it's like, it's, it is so ingrained and it's not necessarily consciously ingrained. Right. You don't really know, like you don't really think about these things until you're kind of faced with that decision and it's like oh wow wait a second like i do have an idea already like this preconceived notion of how i should be and what i should be doing with my life well and then why and where did that come from and do i and do i agree with it right like yeah so my head is like (laughs) these preconceived notions are there i don't know where they came from let's let's examine them and see if we can kind of deconstruct that yeah yeah like let's let's unpack it a little more yeah um well, Pamela, it's been so awesome talking with you. I, I love that we got to get into the digital nomad thing, too. Yeah, me too. Um, Can we talk a tiny bit about the event? Absolutely. Let's talk some about the event because, oh, my God, I don't want to... I was actually talking with Stephanie about this because we just did a podcast right before and we were like, I don't think we want to do any other events except, (laughs) (laughs) except events with, uh, you guys. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, it was so different from just your usual crypto conference. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that this event was it, well, it was intentionally different, right? It was design. It was different by design. So, you know, when, when all of our team looked at, you know, how is this event going to play out? And, you know, we talked with everyone from, you know, LTB and you and, you know, everyone, um, we really wanted to build something that was the antithesis of the everyday, like profiteering corporate agenda infomercial event that seems to have taken over our space. And so, you know, I love the, the, here's my ICO. Yeah, exactly. And here's why you should buy it. And this is my 40 minute presentation about why you should like invest in my crappy company (laughs) that I have a really nice white paper and lots of good marketing, but no actual product. Yes. Um, but you know, I really love the, the, the um, principled nature of 
the idea of escaping and like that ESC thing. I, I love it, you know, and for those of you who don't know ESC or escaping from the traditional conference was, was equality, um, safety and community. And so this event was so different. And I think that's why everyone wanted to participate in it. That's why I wanted to participate in it. Um, because you know, this event, every single seat was the same price. Yes. And was it thousands of dollars? No, it was not. It was wow. 40 bucks. Yep. Or free. So, you know, we did sponsorships for people who couldn't afford to come. Yes. So in a traditional conference, sponsors are the people who pay to have their name plastered all over the place. And they're often given uh, an opportunity to speak. Uh, again, I call those infomercials. But, you know, in, in this event, we took the idea of sponsorship and flipped it around. So instead of a corporation coming and sponsoring the event, the event sponsored people who were in the community who, for whatever reason, couldn't afford to come. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't want finance to be a barrier to participation, right? Because a good right. community has diversity, and that includes diversity of finance. So we were able to sponsor a number of people. I don't have exact numbers right now, but I think the team's going to be putting out a report. So we had equality in pricing. Um, we wanted everyone to feel secure who mm -hmm. came there. Um, and that's why, I, I don't know if you listeners know um, that MK <laughs> was our conduct czar, which we learned later that it was supposed to be Zarina. Is that Zarina. right? Zarina. I was, I was explained that it should be uh, Zarina um, <laughs> by, by a guy. Um, Very good. Which like, you know... I, I, I think most everyone got that, you know, I was being playful right, I with mean, that title. Yeah, no, I mean, that, yeah, that was the whole thing. But, you know, okay. So, yeah, and and you did, like, such an amazing job. And I was so glad that you came up and, like, talked to the crowd and, and, and explained, like, what your role was. And, you know, I think it's kind of taking the the whole idea of anti-harassment and, and just not amping it up, but actually committing to it in a real way. You yes. know, if yes. you have an anti-harassment policy, but you have no way to enforce it, you don't have an anti-harassment policy, right? Like exactly. if, if there's no way for people to report that they're feeling uncomfortable or, or that something's happened, then you don't actually, you're not actually creating a safe space for people. And so we wanted to do that. Um, also right. in case you listeners don't know, MK had the authority to kick <laughs> out anyone who violated the conduct policy, including the performers, including which, the speakers. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Including everyone. So, and, and I, I loved that. And, yes. and I thank you for, um, for paying attention and for, for being there and for doing that. And I think it really made a difference in the experience for, for people there. Yeah. And I kicked out a whopping zero people. Woo! Yes. <laughs> yes. Which was what I wanted and, and was expecting because I knew that we were setting the right tone with this event. Absolutely. And we didn't really have any problems. We didn't have anything reported. We're going to be following up because we were like, okay, you can anonymously report if there was something that made you feel uncomfortable. But I didn't really have to deal with any problems like that. And everyone was very supportive. I got several messages being like, oh, I'm so glad. Like, you're the person who's going to be doing yeah. this. Because I think, I mean, I think I have a pretty good reputation for not being a totalitarian, yeah. you know, a psycho about things. I mean, I, yeah. I could be trusted with, you know, some degree of power. I, I mean, I, I would argue you can be trusted with a lot of a high degree of power. But, you know, yes, the, you know, the, the other thing I think is that having this policy and actually having you be uh, the face of this policy for this event helped us self-select out. So yes. people who didn't want to 
for whatever reason, be a part of an event that treated everyone equally and like provided a safe space, um, they stayed home, which I'm happy about. Yes. Right. And so we attracted the right kind of people. And when I say the right kind of people, I mean the people who wanted to come there and have a good time and who weren't interested in kind of, you know, making it an, an unfun night for anyone. Right. And I think of it as making an unsafe space yeah. for predators. Yeah. No, exactly. You know? I, I love like that. It's, yeah. it's not, you know, I, there's nothing to protect really if you have the kind of right people there. And, and there was such a diverse, outcome too with the attendees it was just amazing that we saw people coming from all around the world yeah because you were doing a giveaway at the end and we were trying to see the farthest that people traveled we had people from uh, china and hungary and venezuela and ukraine yeah and germany germany yeah, every russia like so many people came from around the world for this event or drove pretty long distances too yeah and it was just so amazing to see that kind of support and I yeah, just it was yeah, it was really yeah, it was really amazing. I I, I feel privileged to be part of, of the event. Um, and then the last thing was community, right? Yes. And so this is the the, the third way that this event was really really different from traditional uh, conferences because all of the performers, everyone donated their time to be there. Mm-hmm. Nobody got paid. And instead, we donated all, we are in the process of donating all of the profits to the local Bob community meetup. And so we had merchandise sales and we had, you know, all, all of these amazing things happening and, and, and everything was to benefit the community. Mm-hmm. And I think that that reflects the participants that, that came. And I think it reflects like, all of the performers who came that we all cared enough to donate our time. And we really genuinely wanted to build community. And instead of just talking about it, we actually are financially benefiting the community with, with, with this event. Yeah. And it was wildly successful. It sold out, you know, and it's it just having yeah, four days, I think in four days, That's right? Amazing. Oh, but then we had, we had this amazing refund policy. Yes. So the idea was like, no regrets. So if something came up and, and you couldn't attend, you could get a refund. I think, I think they were doing refunds even like the day of or maybe yep, just 24 hours. Day of, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So I think that also helped with like preventing t- ticket scalping and people buying a bunch of tickets and trying to profit from that. Right. So, had- and the refunds were made in the Bitcoin amount. Yes. That was spent, not the dollar amount. So the tickets were only $40, but say you bought tickets and something happened and you needed a refund, but the price changed in some kind of way. Like you were getting basically the Bitcoin that you had spent. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't denominating, we were denominating, I think, refunds in whatever currency you paid. Yeah. And right. What, yeah, so fiat, yeah, if you paid in fiat, yeah. you got fiat back. Mm-hmm. If you paid in, I think, I think we we're accepting um, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and and Ether. I believe there were all yeah. four. And so, yeah, you got your refund back in the amount, right? Which is like logically what you would think. Right. Right. Like if you're exactly. in cryptocurrency, you'd be like, well, we're not denominating it in fiat now. Like, yeah, right. You're getting that's kind of the whole idea. That's the whole like, point. Right? Crypto is exit, you know, in yeah. a lot of ways. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, with this refund policy and, and, and donating the profits to the community and, you know, creating a safe space for everyone, or like you said, which I'm totally going to adopt now, creating an unsafe space for predators. Um, yes. and, 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 you know, creating an, this sort of inclusiveness 
for everyone, no matter what their financial background is. Like that's yes. something that I'm very proud of being a part of. Yes. And, and I would love to see that applied to more events. Do you have any plans to do more events like this? I don't. I would love to be a part of it. Yeah. That. I mean, I would too. <laughs> so I, this was a, this was a, a Antonop event. Um, so events, and I was the MC and, yes. you know, I was, but in, you totally killed it. Oh, Such thank a you. Great MC. Thank you so much. I, you know, I really, I was excited to be a part of it and I did help with a lot of the planning, um, just because, you know, I'm from Chicago. So I was here last and I've got a lot of connections. And so I did a lot for this event that, you know, I wouldn't normally probably do for the other events, but I'm going to try to convince Andreas and you can too. And we can try to yes. convince his team. So we'll get <laughs> Stephanie and Adam and Jonathan. I will get everyone to come in and like, you know, try and convince him to have a, another event maybe sometime later this year, hopefully. Yeah, that would be great. I love that it was at the Music Box too, which was a great venue. Yeah. Nice theater, you know, very great theater seating. Uh, I really love that. Um, and yeah, you know, it was just kind of like this great stage and uh, the pod- the live podcast recording went awesomely. Yeah. So did Andreas's talk too. I mean, like everything was just so spot on and I felt like, you know, it just worked like a well-oiled machine. Yeah, I felt when I was when I was watching the podcast, I was like, oh, this is what happens behind the scenes. Like, yes, I felt like I was right there. It was actually really, really cool. Yes. It was a fun experience. Well, I hope there's more events in the future. They're definitely the type that I want to be a part of. Yeah, um, me you too. Know, I got I got a bit burnt out going to a lot of these other conferences in like 2014 and 2015. And, yeah. you know, it's it's not that I ever felt like unsafe at them or anything like that, but they just they just didn't have the same energy. Well, like in this conference this or this event, I know you want to call it a conference, right? Like the C word. Um, <laughs> I, this event was this like experience. Yes. Oh, I like experience. That. I like it. Um, was about fun and yes. it was about community. Yes. And I think that that really, at least for me, I felt that I felt it was about fun and about community. I didn't feel like it was, you know, anything other than just a great night out that happened to be about Bitcoin and open blockchains and crypto, right? Yes. So, so often we kind of segregate that part of our lives. We're like, oh, well, here are my crypto friends and like, this <laughs> is what we do. And like, mm, maybe you'll come to a meetup. But like, you know, it was nice to actually have an event that felt like a night out. Yes. But like this time it was a night out to do something rad that had to do with crypto. So, right, I, right. I, was- I liked it. It, it was so great. And I think people had such a good time. I got a bunch of good feedback. Yeah, I did too. too. So it was, uh, yeah, it was like an experience. And the community is, I mean, those are the people who stick around through all of the crazy ups and downs yeah. in the space too. And to, you know, bring those people in closer, I think it's just so important because you're going to have people who are coming in and out of the space. You're going to have people who are just interested when the price shoots up and they just want to come in and, you know, it's just about making money for them or whatever and that that i don't really count those people as the community yeah well you know i think uh i think i saw a tweet from andreas's talk during this event that was like make them come for the price but have them stay for the principles yes or something like that and like part of being in the community is when people come in like if you share this value that you know this technology is about more than profit then and you're part of the community, you have an opportunity to help those people see why you think that way, right? And mm-hmm. you're not trying to convince them, 
right? Because because it's their job to decide what they want to believe. But if you're a voice there and you can say, hey, listen, you know, profit is great, but like, look at all these other things and look at all of these other ways that we can impact people's lives positively and look at all this experimentation and fun that we can have. Um, you know, that's part of what building community is about. And that's part of the value of community is having a place for those people to go. Right. And hear about new ideas and, and get excited about things that have really nothing to do with price. Yes, exactly. And yeah. I think this event did a really good job of that. And also the Chicago Bob meetup. Um, just what a great group of people. Oh, my gosh. God, the yeah. organizers of that are just amazing. I mean, you know, so Bitcoin Mom and I have both stepped down as organizers. And now mm-hmm. uh, Hannah is in charge. And she is just a rock star. Yes, I love uh, Hannah. I love Hannah, too. Big like, shout she's, out to Oh, Hannah. yeah. Huge shout out to Hannah. Like, big props. She's come in. And the rest of her team, Ben and Ian, have been helping out. So it's Hannah, Ben, and Ian. And, and they've really like been able to grow the meetup and continue to provide valuable education to the community and, and social uh, interaction and like really been listening to the community and trying to provide information that they want and need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm so glad that they're going to get some, you know, funding from this yeah. event to, to continue those educational uh, meetups and parties. And, yeah, you know, totally. Do. It's, you, I have this philosophical idea that, you know, I feel like the community should fund the community meetup. Because mm-hmm. when you have corporate sponsors, inevitably, you end up with like this kind of quid pro quo feeling, right? Um, and I really, I love the idea of community members and community events actually funding the community, making it self-funding. Yes. And and this was uh, hopefully a capital infusion to, to like give them the money that they need to be able to grow and do fundraising efforts within the community itself. Yes. And I just respect that that's such a huge part of everything that you're doing, whether it's with Third Key Solutions or this event or the meetup. It's like, look, like you can't come in and throw a bunch of money at me and buy me out. You yeah, know, you can't like I can't be bought. And I think that's awesome. Well, thanks. and you're doing and you've done so much advocacy and education for free already. I mean, you, you've just been so giving to people. Well, I really like I genuinely care. And yeah. I think that, you know, people in this space, if, if you have cryptocurrency, you're already a risk taker. Yes. And, and we do need to, to help each other and, and kind of share the information that we have. Um, and so that's why I've done, you know, so much free work because I don't scale. You know, this was one of the reasons <laughs> why I wrote the, the crypto asset inheritance planning book because these were the kinds of services that I was giving to people around the world. You know, I was walking, I was talking to them about what do they need to do for estate planning and like how can they protect their assets and all these things. But like, I can't talk to everyone who needs this information. Right. So I'm right. publishing, you know, articles on Medium. I actually have a couple of articles on Medium that people might find useful. Uh, there's a, there's a crypto asset uh, inventory where you can do like, inheritance planning in three minutes, which that should be. That's great. Right? (laughs) Because like, it seems like this huge task that you like don't really want to do. So it's kind of an inventory that you can do in three minutes and a letter to your loved ones. And like, that'll kind of give, give you the feel. I'm sorry, if you haven't done any, (laughs) if you haven't done any estate planning yet, um, you know, those free resources can help you, can help start you. And then the book kind of expands on those things. So it helps you analyze those things and goes through step by step and helps you figure out the plan that works for you. 
Yes. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes. And, okay. you know, as much uh, free work as you have done for people in this space, it's okay if you do make money off of yeah. all of this awesome material. So where can people find the book to buy? Um, and where can people find uh, more information about the legal workshops, too? Because, that, I mean, the value you're bringing with this information is just incredible. And I mean, whether you're a lawyer or whether you're someone who's looking to secure their crypto for their family or for whatever, for, you know, unexpected circumstances, like it's so, so vital that people have this information. Thank you. I I think it's important too, which is why I'm doing the work, but it's nice to hear that you think it's important too. Um, So you can buy the book on Amazon. It's available on amazon.com. It's also available uh, in Europe. It's available in Japan. It's available all over the place, English language only for now. Uh, It's in paperback and Kindle. And, um, here's, here's a news flash. Some, oh. uh, are you ready? Yeah. So we're like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, just this weekend, uh, Dr. Stephanie Murphy has agreed <gasps> to do the audiobook. Oh my God. I'm so excited. You heard it here first. I know people. that's exactly right. Um, I am so excited. So, you know, we're hoping to have that done sometime this summer. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So we're going to get the audiobook version out, which is so great. Yep. Paperback yes. and, and Kindle version. Kindle version actually just became available on the day of the event. So April 25th, the, the Kindle version became available for the book. Um, And people can find out about the book and about me and about the legal workshops at my website, empoweredlaw.com. So empowered, E-M-P-O-W-E-R-E-D-L-A-W.com. Awesome. Awesome. Check out empoweredlaw.com. Buy the book. Uh, sign up for the workshops if you're a lawyer. I don't know if any lawyers are listening to this podcast, but if you are, <laughs> then you should be. You should be. If you know a lawyer, tell them they should be listening to this podcast <laughs> and, and being a part of Patreon. So, um, I might not have mentioned this, but I am, I am a patron of MK and I yes. am, and I am privileged Thank to you. do that. Yeah. It's, yes. it's awesome. And I, I deeply appreciate your support and not just on Patreon, but just knowing you as a friend and like, someone that, you know, has been active in this space for years and you're just inspirational in so many ways. And well, it's like a love fest here. I know, it's a total love fest. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so glad I finally got to get you on again because I know we did the interview like years ago, but I was like, no, I need to get you on. Yeah, I well, so much has changed, so right? Much has like changed. in both of our lives since then. So yeah, yeah. Th- thank you so much for having me. It's my privilege to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And everyone check out her stuff because she is a total badass. <laughs> And we will see you next time. Bye. sexual man say if he's in a relationship with me. I don't so want to hear making love. If I hear that, I'm going to cut your balls off. Okay? <laughs> okay? It's called fucking, where the pee-pee goes in the hoo